My name's Cutter Calloway, and I'm Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome to Fuller Studio. Welcome to TV and Theology, an audio series in which we construct a theology of television to help viewers more fully engage with the power and meaning of TV. This season, I talk with filmmaker and Fuller alum Avril Speaks about the Netflix Marvel series, Luke Cage. Well, we are talking privilege and how to posture ourselves, and maybe we're just making stuff up at this point, but whether you assume the posture of Superman or Luke Cage and what that means for people with privilege or how we use it. And maybe you could say again a bit of what you were just saying about what it looks like to sort of puff your chest out and face away from those who you're trying to help versus turning around and embracing people and assuming that posture, even though the impulse is the same, you're still trying to protect people, right. but how those are different. Right. It's not, Superman isn't a horrible person yeah. for standing there and protecting, but there is a difference between yeah. standing up in front of people and saying, I have this power and yeah. I'm going to face the enemy and, you yeah. know, and take the bullets versus... You know, if you think of physically, you know, if you think in terms of privilege, like that's yeah. a privilege that Superman has. That's yeah. a privilege that Luke Cage has yeah. is that they are resistant mm -hmm. to bullets. And so it looks different if you're standing there facing the bullets and saying, shoot me and I'm mm -hmm. going to protect these people mm -hmm. versus you turn around and let your privilege be what it's going to be. Like yeah. your privilege is there. Yeah. Like you, yeah. you can get shot in the back and yeah. it doesn't do anything to you. So what happens when you take that privilege mm. and you turn it around yeah. and let them shoot you in the back because you know that it doesn't yeah. do anything to you and it becomes two-sided because you're letting your privilege do that on that yeah. end, but then you're also getting your hands dirty and you're embracing the people that are behind you as well. When he does that too, even beyond the when he's being shot at, when he goes back to, okay, now, <laughs> you know, another place is shot up, whether it's a restaurant or, you know, a person's place of business. And then he goes back and returns or gives money to help rebuild, right. or he returns the ring that Cottonmouth as sort of thugs had mm -hmm. stolen. I think you had said at some point that, okay, the privilege is always there. Um, it's how you it's how you use it. But privilege isn't actually what ultimately is salvific. It's not what actually saves. It's right. the posture of back into this community right. of I'm going to embrace those who I'm called to embrace, the people that are here. And you can't do that if you're facing away, like right. if your back is turned to them. So the redemptive move is always the turn back toward community and restoration there. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's one of the ways we tend to think, and especially as a white male, we tend to think of leveraging our privilege in that sort of, I'm coming to save the day, mm -hmm. without the dirtiness of actually being involved in the aftermath or mm -hmm. the restoration, the rebuilding. We mm -hmm. get that in, in a post-Katrina world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. like we were great at immediate first response. And in fact, the church in general is. I mean, church in America gives so much to these urgent crises but then after that, it's mm -hmm. like the next year and five years and 10 years, you still have, you know, cities in Louisiana that have not rebuilt, yeah, you know, yeah. entire communities that are wiped out. And so we don't have that sense of how do you save, how do you leverage privilege mm -hmm. in an embrace? And sometimes there's some resentment with that, like yeah. with the community itself. It's yeah. like, we've been here all this time. We've been suffering all this time. And now all of a sudden you want to fly yeah. in and yeah. save the day. What we really need is someone to yeah. turn around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, Luke Cage doesn't fly turn either, back. right? And he's, he doesn't fly. He faces on the ground realities because he's there and he lives yeah. there. And yeah. 
He's not an alien, literal alien from somewhere else. He's a part of the community. And that's one of the things I love about this series is that he's very devoted to this place. Yeah. Like, it's always like, I got to save Harlem. I got to save Harlem. Yeah. I got to save Harlem. Like, he's not flying around the world yeah. doing hmm. this and that in different places. No, it's this community. Yeah. It's this place. He always says, you know, I have to save Harlem. But, you know, a lot of it, it all stems from Pop's barbershop. Like, that's kind of what gives yeah. him this impetus to go and yeah. actually use these powers for some good. But I love the fact that it's so rooted yeah. in a place. Yeah. There was another series I was talking to some folks about why he does or doesn't wear a mask compared to a mm. daredevil or these mm. other, you know, even in his universe, the Marvel universe. And that was one of the things I think is true is that there's no reason why it would be a problem <laughs> for mm -hmm. them to know who he is. Mm -hmm. Everybody is under threat because, mm -hmm. you know, other superheroes, they're trying to protect their loved ones, right, mm -hmm. from violence. Well, that automatically signals a kind of privilege that Luke Cage doesn't have. Right. He doesn't have a network of people who are safe ever. Mm -hmm. So they're not in more danger because they know who he is. They're just always in danger. But then also that sort of flying in that most, whether it's a Clark Kent or a Daredevil or whoever, when you go back to your daily life, you are literally removing yourself from that context. Mm -hmm. And that sort of setup sort of foundationally changes the way you think about privilege and what you're doing when you help. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that sort of going back and forth or the ability to go in or out, I think gets to how these episodes are structured, or at least how they were intended to be, whether or not it, people pick up on it. But you've been antsy to talk about Gangstar and music. So <laughs> Every one of the episodes is titled after one of their songs. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the show creator had said that he's convinced that in the past, before the digitization of music, where we would buy like a single or something, where we would buy whole albums. I would do this too. You'd buy an album and you'd go home and you'd listen to the whole thing. It would be like binge listening. Mm -hmm. And so he's saying now with the new way that TV is structured and that Luke Cage is all here, when someone goes and binges, they're binging it in a similar kind of way. They're sitting down and really living into this story and becoming immersed in it in a way that you would an album. And so he charts the whole thing in terms of these lyrics or these songs. In episode five and six, episode five is titled just to get a rep. Episode six is Suckers Needed Bodyguards. And in both of those, it's not just that those titles of those songs frame the episodes, but then frequently we see in Cottonmouth's club, contemporary hip hop artists performing in his club, and it kind of frames the whole episode there. Are you in particular a Gangstar fan, or is this interesting to you simply because of how it was structured, the way the creator of the show structured it? So yeah, I mean, growing up, I listened to Gangstar. I had a crush on Guru. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was trying to remember, like, what did I think of Gangstar, like, back in the day? Yeah. And what I remember about Gangstar, like, I remember first hearing about this group Gangstar, you know, in the 90s or what have you, when they were out. And I remember being, we always talked about Guru as being an intellect. Like mm. it was always mm. like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's like intelligent rap. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I find it's interesting to me in the context of this series, using that mm. as kind of this way of framing yeah. each of these episodes yeah. is because like, I've always known Gangstar to be like, he's intellectual, yeah. but Gangstar, he could go there if yeah. he needed to, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like he wasn't, he wasn't no punk. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? He wasn't yeah. gonna just, you know, sit back, but he's going to come at you. He's going to school yeah, you. Yeah. He's going to come at you with some knowledge, you mm -hmm. know? And, you know, I think that there's kind of a parallel there with mm -hmm. Luke Cage too. Yeah. Like we were talking about that scene with, you know, the Christmas attic scene. Yeah. It's like, this is not a scene about, you know, I'm going to knock the gun out your hand and fight you yeah. and all this kind of stuff. This mm -hmm. is a scene about, 
I'm going to educate you about Christmas yeah. addicts yeah. and challenge you about why you are mm. pulling a gun on me in front of this historical landmark. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? So I'm going to come at you from that angle mm. first. If I'm going to use violence if I have to. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of look at Gangstar's presence in mm. this series from that point of view in terms sure. of who Gangstar was and like kind of their sort of posture, if you yeah, will, in yeah, hip hop. Yeah. You know well, it wasn't like they wouldn't go there if they needed to, but you know, that's the equivalent. <laughs> I always associate those two together. Well, it's interesting to see, and I didn't write everybody down, all the performers that land on Cottonmouth stage. It's drawing from really what started long, long ago, but basically message music mm -hmm. in some ways. But mm -hmm. then now this is rapper hip hop as message music, going back to, you know, the days of Nina Simone or mm -hmm. Marvin Gaye mm -hmm. and the always on the ground reality of facing <laughs> inhumane violence, but in a way that's saying it's thoughtful and intelligent and prophetic, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like it's calling out its, it's truth to power, essentially. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great way to, to frame it as saying it's just this gentle reminder every time before you start is, I'm an intelligent black man telling a story that needs to be told mm -hmm. and we need to wake up. And even though it's not in Harlem, I think it's in Boston, mm -hmm. the monument to Christmas addicts. Right. So that's fictional. But still, like the irony of us doing that is mm -hmm. so kind of absurd. Mm -hmm. But then you get back in episode three, you have Charles Bradley's Ain't It a Sin. I love one of the lines, I've tried to be a righteous man, but I'm tired of being used, right? So that's totally a Luke Cage. That's totally yeah. what you're saying, even with Gangstar. Like, I'm doing this for good reasons. I have this moral compass, but man, at a certain point, I'm going to come at you, right. right? And then in episode five, we have Jadena's Long Live the Chief is going on here while we're at Cottonmouth's club. And what I maybe kind of had an awakening moment of seeing even sort of what we understand as moral, right? Because, you know, especially rap, hip hop gets a lot of uh, bad rap. And sometimes because of the content of what it's saying, and that we're like, oh, we're not... I don't like how they're saying that or the language they're using. And then of course, it'd be interesting to hear you speak to this of when it becomes misogynistic and that becomes a part of the culture. But like as a white man, I have appropriated black music mm -hmm. <laughs> into my own listening habits. And I try to do that carefully. So there's stuff that I really like and stuff that I don't. But what was interesting to me is all of this sort of blurs in as well into the church too. So it's in the barbershop, it's in the streets, it's in sort of politics, but also it's in the church and all these same people. So you've got Cottonmouth at a club listening to message music, and then you go into the church and they're at Pop's funeral and you get basically two homilies, right? And it's mm. even preaching is riffing on the same kind of ethos and message music as rap really is. Mm. And it's different. It's sanitized in a little different way. There's a different kind of rhythm to it. But whether it's, you know, MLK's kind of I have a dream speech, right, where it just keeps coming, circling back to I have a dream, I have a dream, and it kind of spins out from there. I look at all this and I think two things. One, I'll give Todd Johnson, who teaches here at Fuller, some credit for this. <laughs> but he's convinced, and I think he's right, that not just Black creative culture, but specifically African culture has influenced American contemporary culture probably more than anything else. And you see all this in terms of whether it's been in a misappropriation or just it's filtered out into so many different forms that we kind of lose sight of it. But we see it concretized both in hip hop and in the black church experience. Um, and I keep seeing how, at least in a white church experience, we like to keep things separate. Mm -hmm. Like we're not okay with the mob boss coming in and giving a homily mm -hmm. in church, right? So I wonder if you could say maybe a little bit about that as you're thinking about Gangstar lyrics and how it's good, it's progressive, it's intelligent, but then there's always this question of 
well, who's good and bad here? Who's right and wrong? Who's the bad guy? Are we all good guys, but with different intentions? And what does it mean when we land in the church and we're doing a funeral? Well, as you were talking, I was thinking about something that happened to me this week, post-election, which mm-hmm. we haven't talked about the election yet, but like <laughs> actually the day after the election, I was feeling really, you know, just asking a lot of questions. Yeah, we all were, why. we all were. <laughs> and I got in my car, I was on my way to work, and the song All Right by Kendrick Lamar came on. And I love that song, but that song never resonated with me Mm. as much as it did that Mm. morning. And it was like, I should have pulled up the lyrics to it, but there's a part, it's kind of like the hook part where Mm -hmm. he's like, you're pulling it up now. But (laughs) what I thought to myself, that song gave me so much hope and just a feeling like, yeah, it's gonna be okay. We're gonna be all right. So yeah, it was the part where he says, when you know we've been hurt, been down before, and he uses the N-word. When our pride was low, looking at the world, like, where do we go? And we hate Popo, want to kill us dead in the street for sure. I'm at the preacher's door, my knee's getting weak, and my gun might blow, but we gonna be all right. Hmm. And it was such a, just a real moment. Hmm. Do you know uh-huh. what I mean? Hmm. Of saying, we're angry and we see this injustice, but we're gonna be all right. Hmm. And just those lyrics and the beat behind it as well, it made me really, I don't think I had felt that Hmm. hopeful (laughs) in that past day, like in that past 24 hours. And I thought to myself, what does that say that this song Mm -hmm. gives me hope right now? Mm -hmm. And in the midst of, you know, I had posted something on Facebook about I'm disappointed or what have you. And someone commented and said, well, but God's in control. And we just have to remember that we don't serve man, we serve God. And I'm like, I get that. (laughs) However, this is a time when we have to look at this and we have to grieve. We Mm -hmm. have to mourn. You know, there's a time. Mm -hmm. There's a time for laughter and there's a time Mm -hmm. for weeping too. This is a time for weeping. So anyways, I say all that to say it really got me thinking about the separation, the fusion of sacred, secular, Mm -hmm. kind of what are those things that give us hope? That message that God is in control did not give me hope in that moment. Kendrick Lamar gave me hope. And he's a big mess of stuff. And he's a big mess of stuff. I mean, and even those lyrics, it's a big mess of stuff. Just that little hook is a big mess of stuff. Well, that's what's so interesting to me of, you know, back to Luke Cage of who he is and what he's facing, what, you know, the plight of black people in America are. One of the privileges of whiteness is to be able to sort of bracket those things out and mm-hmm. say, I'm going to think about God now yeah. without all the mess, yeah. right? And in fact, don't bring that mess in here. And yet, as you're kind of getting at it, it's like, you can't, not only can you not set the mess aside, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't set the frustration, the anger aside, but you're actually sort of doing a disservice. You're diminishing what God is up to if you do, because yeah, the God is in charge. It's not wrong. It's mm-hmm. not as mm-hmm. if that is not true, but right. Biblically, even we get, you know, Psalms, how long, O Lord, right? right? right. That assumes God's in charge. And in fact, assumes because stuff is so bad, you need to call it out Mm -hmm. to God. And Mm -hmm. and I think that's the interesting thing of that response Mm -hmm. to your basically how long, O Lord response, Mm -hmm. do we have to deal with this, was you were rooting yourself in a long history of saying, of course, God's in charge. And because God's in charge, I need to say, God, what's up? Right, Right. I mean, exactly. And that I think is one of the things that at least white America, white Christians can learn a lot is not being so quick to 
judge or critique or label as unethical mm -hmm. things that are, seem a little dirty or a little yeah. immoral when in fact they're speaking prophetically. We don't do that very well. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like I kind of had this sort of epiphany moment while I was at Fuller actually with that hmm. in terms of the church because I grew up in the AME church, African Methodist Episcopal, and the church that I went to I never grew up feeling like there was a separation. Mm. I mean, we were a church that was about the community. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, what is the community concerned mm -hmm. about? What is the community talking about? And let's talk about that. It's a different way of looking at the church's role in yeah. society. And it's very much like we're at the center, not only morally, mm. but also socially as well. Yeah. Like, what does that look like? And mm. so you were talking about message music and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. Like, there was a lot of blending of mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I remember going to a Stevie Wonder concert a couple yeah. of years ago and, you know, we had church up yeah. in a Stevie <laughs> yeah. Wonder concert. Yeah. I think we started singing Amazing Grace or something. Mm -hmm. And then we started singing mm -hmm. We Come This Far By Faith, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. in a stadium yeah. after we sing, I don't know, whatever you know, <laughs> Stevie, Stevie Wonder, Wonder song. Yeah. But it's like, and I thought to myself, yeah, this is that yeah. marriage that I've yeah. grown up with. It wasn't until I started, you know, when I got older, when I became an adult and started yeah. going to white churches, actually, yeah. where I started, oh, yes, this is sacred and this is mm -hmm. secular and making those distinctions. <laughs> you know, when I got to Fuller, it was like, wait a second. <laughs> That's not how I grew up. Yeah. Like I grew yeah. up seeing all of this together. The earth is the Lord's, yeah. you know, and so yeah. all of that kind of comes together. And even some of the things that we listen to and see in the secular world is speaking yeah. to our world. And God has something to say about that, mm -hmm. too. And there's a way that we can look at all of it yeah. and that we can embrace all of it and have conversations about it and take it to God, like you were yeah. saying. Yeah. Well, that probably gets back to that core image of Luke Cage embracing mm -hmm. his community, his people, as opposed to a sort of distance and detached, I'm going to protect you, but I kind of don't really like some of the stuff you're involved in, mm -hmm. you know? Now, it also doesn't say that, you know, there's a woman in one of my classes right now. She's a grandmother of a 13-year-old who loves Kendrick Lamar. And she comes to me and she's like, listen, <laughs> I don't approve of these lyrics. And she pulls up some lyrics and she's like, what do I tell my grandson? Because we're talking about this, like yeah. how God is active in this and how I think even he says he's kind of presenting the gospel in some ways. And she's like, I don't know if I can call this gospel. And I was like, listen, I, I can't comment there. I, I don't want to say that everything the man said we should, yeah, yeah you know, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. with youth and other stuff, there's, yeah. you know, but that doesn't discount the significance of it, the profound ways in which it's rooted in this broader culture, this broader history, and that we need to do a better job of figuring out how God is moving as opposed to writing it off right. uh, from the outset. I think you said something key there is just not writing it off because yeah. everything is not for everybody. Yeah. You yeah. know, everybody's not going to listen to Kendrick Lamar and yeah. go like, I found God in that. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're just not. But we're wired yeah. very differently. <laughs> and I'm always amazed at how God speaks to people and yeah. through people, you know, whether it's through music, through movies, through television, we just don't know how that's going to well, resonate. A good example is I dropped my daughter off this morning at her ballet class. Mm. She's six, my oldest, and I had in the CD player my Rage Against the Machine album. I didn't play that until she got out, and then I turned it up and rolled on over here right. uh, with some message music right there. and. <laughs> Some very pointed music, <laughs> if anyone has ever listened to Raging It's Machine. Well, we'll keep this going and maybe talk about representation and maybe violence coming up of how we think about depictions of violence and what we do as Christians to that. So look forward to that on our next episode. You've been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. 
Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu studio.